0: Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bible to the book of Daniel, to the book of Daniel. And we're coming back to it, and it's Daniel chapter four. And as you're turning there, Victor Hugo, the great writer, tells of the French general Napoleon on the morning of the famous battle of Waterloo. The little dictator is. He was known, Napoleon, stood gazing upon the field of battle, as he described to his commanding officer the strategy for that day's campaign. He said to Napoleon, we will put the infantry here, the cavalry here, and the artillery here. At the end of the day, he said, England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. After a pause, one of his commanding officers said to him, but we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. And Napoleon at that point with arrogant pride, Hugo says that the little dictator stretched out his body to full height and replied, I want you to understand that Napoleon Proposes And Napoleon disposes. Hugo wrote this. From that moment, Waterloo was lost. For God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he has planned. And on the night of the battle, Napoleon was the prisoner of Wellington. And France was at the feet of England. Pride, presumption. We don't know what's going to happen. God, as we just sang, is the ancient of days. We come to the classic confrontation in Scripture. There's many of them. We began it last week on Nebuchadnezzar. This is the confrontation of Nebuchadnezzar versus God. And Nebuchadnezzar views himself here in this text as. Lord of the universe. He is full of pride. One commentator said that Nebuchadnezzar apparently had no one except Daniel who would whisper in his ear. And he was referring to that a Roman slave was appointed to do so, to whisper in the ear when a victorious general returned to Rome with the honor of triumph. And what the the slave or the soldier would whisper was homo s homo s and he would whisper in his ear, You are only a man. And I think it's that what Nebuchadnezzar forgot. So we're in chapter 4 here, God's sovereign display first. Chapter 1 over Daniel, he arranged all of his health and his habits and all those things so that he and his three friends were superior and outthought, and were more wise than all of the others. Chapter 2 was his sovereign dominion, God's over the nations, where he told of four successful nations that would flow. Chapter 3 was God's sovereign deliverance over the fiery furnace with the three friends that were cast into it. And chapter 4 is God's sovereign decree over Nebuchadnezzar. Let me dive into the text and just review maybe just briefly for you so that we can get to the second half. Here it says in the intro in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth peace be multiplied to you, and it seemed good, Nebuchadnezzar writing, to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his d- dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar, you can tell, is writing there in that in his own hand, of what the Lord has done for him. Obviously, he's going to look back by the time we get to chapter 4 of what God does in his life miraculously. But he writes now... Even though we're coming out of chapter 3 of looking back at what God had done. And he speaks of those signs and wonders. And certainly those signs and wonders were bound up in chapter 2. Where he gave the four succeeding kingdoms to come. Those signs and wonders were in chapter 3. Where those three men were cast into that fiery furnace. And came out untouched, unscathed with no smoke, and then it will also include his amazing testimony and conversion of his own life in chapter 4, but we must wait to the end for that. And so we're asking the question that I posed last week, how did a proud, self-willed tyrant go in the last chapter from building a 90-foot image to himself? to bowing his knee to the Most High God. What did God do in Nebuchadnezzar's life to strip him of his pride so that in his own language he would look up to heaven and acknowledge God? Now, the focus here in chapter 4 is a dream, the tree. And that dream is both revealed and interpreted and fulfilled okay and that dream was given in verse 17 in order that you may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men in other words despite how things appear in that day to this first instruction to that scattered people of Israel in a foreign town of Babylon and even to our own day Despite how things appear, God is in sovereign control. And so this is not just written about Nebuchadnezzar. It's also written for you and me. So listen carefully. Let me draw you back just for a moment to the dream is revealed. The dream is first revealed. Nebuchadnezzar is at his peak. Now I remind you, he's at least 30 years into his reign here. So we're not back to Daniel 1 when Daniel and the boys were 15. We're about 30 years later and he's at his peak. And we know this. Look at the text in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in my bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. He's at his peak. He's at his ease. We probably think historically he had produced about 53 buildings by this time. He produced one of the greatest wonders of the known world at that time, the hanging gardens that he built for his wife. Maybe I'll tell you more about that next week. He was the greatest ruler in the known world. He's conquered everything, but like in two, he can't conquer his dream. And though he's at ease in his palace and he's made it, the key has arrived, something fearful happens. And it surrounds this dream. Look at the the tree in verse 11. Here's in that vision. The tree grew and it became strong and the top reached to the heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. And the beast, verse 12, uh, the beast of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in the branches and all the flesh was fred, fed from it I mean it was an enormous tree It was right as I mentioned in the middle of the earth Visible if you will uh, hyper, He's speaking in hyper, hyperbole To the end of the earth The foliage beautiful The fruit abundant To sanctuary for the birds All the creatures fed themselves from it It was food for all And that sounds good And maybe that was not what bothered him what bothered him to take him from ease to terror was verse thirteen. Look again. It says there, "I saw the vision in my bed, as I, as I, in my head, as I lay on my behead, and behold, a watcher." A holy one, that is a description of an angel. It came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip all of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. I mean, it's quite a statement. He told him there in this dream that the angelic watcher here leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amongst the tender grass of the field. As symbolic of that stump being preserved for a time. So this dream that starts out glorious turns into a disaster. And you'll note, and this is where we left off, that dream changes from a tree to a person. Look at verse 15 carefully. It says in verse 15, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Verse 16, let his mind be changed into a man's, and let the beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. And so here, there's going to be a a change here. It's a tree, and it's a metaphor, but it, it turns into a man. And you say, well, why this dream? Look at verse 17, here's the theme of the whole chapter. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, plural, angels. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules over or rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. There's the theme that you may know, and I don't think it's just that they may know, that you may know that the living, or the living may know that the most high rules over the kingdom of men. You say, well, what happened? Look at verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because previously all the wise men in my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. In fact, look on in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you. And the interpretation for your enemies. I think there's just a tender note to Daniel. He's been serving this king for some 30 years, which lets you know that in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel is about 45. Okay, I'm just trying to position that for you. And he said, I wish that it only applied to those who hate you, to those who are your enemies. And Daniel stops, he's dismayed, he's he's alarmed, He, he has compassion, but nevertheless, he proceeds forward. And so we go from the dream revealed, secondly, to the dream interpreted. In, in fact, he interpreted it, as you can see, look at verse 22. Uh, it says, or 21, or go back to 20, I'm sorry. It says, the tree you saw, verse 20, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant in which was food for all under the beast of the field that found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. this, it is you, O king, you have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and it reaches, if you will, to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So you can see now as the, this vision is now interpreted, interpreted that it is the king, that Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. It is you. And you can imagine it must have got very silent at that point. It kind of reminds me of King David when he was being confronted by Nathan the prophet for his sin with Bathsheba and he pointed, did the prophet his finger at him and said, you are the man. And so he brought in all of his astrologers here, all of his wise men, all of the Chaldeans, and none was able to interpret. So he brings Daniel in, and Daniel interprets and says, you are the tree, Nebuchadnezzar. You are, back in chapter 2, the head of gold. Say, well, what took place? Well, look, verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump in the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. And it says in verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the most high which has come upon you, my Lord. What a statement. I mean, Daniel just knew it. God gave that to him. He knew that dream, and he not only had it revealed, but he interpreted that dream for the king, and sadly, Nebuchadnezzar would be removed. Look at verse 25. Look at the text. It's there that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and and seven periods of time, which is a year, Back in Daniel seven twenty five, So seven years shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Very similar to verse 17. What's incredible though, in that prophecy that would be revealed to him is verse 26. It's interesting. It says, and it was commanded does this angelic watcher to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom, touch of mercy, shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. We're going to chop you down. We're going to strip the foliage. We're going to take your mind away for a period of seven years and he gives them hope. But in the midst of this, there's an amazing statement of compassion in verse 27. Look, it says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And then this, break off your sins by practicing righteousness And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. This, that there may perhaps be a lengthening, he says, of your prosperity. So amazing. Break off your sins. Practice righteousness. Now you might say, practice righteousness. I think herein lies the gospel come to Christ, repent of your sins, trust in the Savior, and do the works that are consistent with a relationship with God. So even though, beloved, God is sovereign, and he decreed this for Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, as a prophet, as a man of God, says, listen, I'm appealing to you. Show mercy. God perhaps may lengthen your prosperity. I find it striking that in the midst of God's sovereignty that is over all of the book of Daniel, that He gives Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity to repent. You say, Well, could that ever change? Well, yes. From Genesis to Revelation, God is merciful, God is gracious. Do you remember when we studied the book of Jonah, swallowed by the great fish, spit out upon the shores of Nineveh, went back and obediently proclaimed to Nineveh, to the Assyrians in 40 days, your city will be destroyed. And they heard that within the city and the city leaders and the officials and the council came together and they repented, right? And they put on sackcloth and ashes. And God did not uh, bring the fire down. He relented at their repentance because he's gracious. And here in the text is the same thing. He's giving Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity. But he may be giving that to you today. There may be some in here who have been whispered in the ear, and you're not listening. Or there's people that you're talking to, whether it's family or friends, and you're telling them and telling them and telling them, and here, they had been telling Nebuchadnezzar 30 years, but Daniel has this appeal. Listen, it's not a whole lot different when Noah built a boat, he built an ark, Because of the coming flood. How long was it from the time that Noah started the construction or when the command first came out that these people need to repent to when the rain came and the waters came up and the rains came down? A hundred and twenty years. And so you're gaining a little window into the heart of God here. He's sovereign, as you see. But in the same breath, he's compassionate. He's merciful. He's giving Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity. But Nebuchadnezzar, rather than seeing his blessing coming from God to benefit others, Nebuchadnezzar abuses his blessing to actually abuse others so consumed with his building projects that he ignores the poor. In fact, this is Nebuchadnezzar, building buildings, hanging gardens, the known wonder, while he does it on the back of all the other kingdoms that he has conquered. And so, Nebuchadnezzar, you say, what happened? Well, he didn't repent, and the hammer fell Judgment fell So here the dream is interpreted Right, it's revealed It's interpreted And thirdly, it's fulfilled It's fulfilled You say, well, what happened? Well, look at verse 28 All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar Don't miss miss the next phrase At the end of what? Twelve months Daniel said, listen repent, break off your sins, mercy will be provided for you. But in this case, 12 more months, and at the end of a year, look at verse 29, he's walking on the, it says, the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. In fact, you can just, I can see him there. This roof was massive, beloved. Historians tell us that just across the top of the roof, they could have chariot races up there with seven chariots in tow. And this is all the stuff he built, and he's looking probably across the way over at the hanging gardens. So at the end of these months, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, it's, is this not great Babylon? Is not great is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. What a statement. As he struts along the roof, the palace, I have built this, you can see the pronouns, and my mighty power I've built it for my glory. I've built it for my majesty. It just drips with pride. It's almost as though he thinks he's God himself. Nebuchadnezzar, beloved, at this point is a megalomaniac. God said, though, however, in Isaiah 48, 11, that I will not share my glory with another. So he takes all the all the credit when God actually, according to one, one and two, raised him up. God used Nebuchadnezzar as a tool for a disobedient nation, but he becomes a megalomaniac. His delusions of greatness. He's obsessed with his name. It is a lust, it is a craving for power. Say so what happened? Look back in verse 31. It says, while the words, scary, were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. It says there that the kingdom has, been, has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made uh, to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will immediately. Immediately. Some commentators say, in the very hour as he spoke the word, it said the, the word. Verse thirty-three was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till the hair till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. What a judgment. One moment, he is the most powerful man in the world. And then in the very next moment, he's reduced to a beast on all fours. Immediately, verse 33, from strutting, if you will, in all his glory to the mind of a beast I mean, can you imagine what his aides thought? Can you imagine what his family thought? Beloved, he goes insane. He loses his mind. He goes from a sheltering tree in a metaphorical way, uh, sheltering animals, to turning into an animal. You say, well, what, what happened to his kingdom? Well, there's nothing written here, but it is believed historically that during this period, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Amel Marduk, ruled Babylon so that it would function. And I think he, if he was the one uh, ruling Babylon, I personally think it was also under Daniel's care. Daniel would be all through his kingdom, even to the takeover of the Medo Persian kingdom, which we'll see in a couple weeks, where the Medes and the Persians came in and one night just to took Babylon. And Daniel will serve alongside King Darius as well. But here he goes insane. Certain people have described this as lycanthropy where someone becomes like a wolf. Some people describe it as boanthropy where someone actually becomes and acts like an ox I don't like to go too far in that because this definitely is the judgment of God. He went from being the most known leader, the greatest leader, the most powerful leader to being reduced to one who was eating grass and his hair became like an eagle and his fingernails began to grow claws so that they curled down. And this was for seven years. Say, well, what do we take from that well maybe three aspects to it number one most high rules God most high rules not politics not grassroots politics which are helpful we're not putting candidates into the office the most high rules over the kingdom of men Napoleon proposes Napoleon he said disposes but we understand that most high rules and I think this was a word to the Jewish people and to you do not be discouraged at the place that we're in God appoints rulers Romans 13, either for our good or for our judgment, but he is over all. And I think as this hit the Jewish believers, it was comforting to them because here's Nebuchadnezzar marching in in three successive deportations, carrying them out, maybe by rope and uh, you know, a hook through their nose, slaughtered many people, slaughtered the temple, took the vessels out of the temple. They're 900 miles away from Jerusalem. And here God and his sovereignty Says, no, until you know that the most high rules. So this is the master theme, he rules. Secondly, as a sub-theme, pride is a cruel master. It's a cruel master. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Listen, I, I mean, this has got to speak to us in a secondary sense that we don't drip with the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it was Calvin who said this. Listen carefully. When God wishes to lead us to repentance, he is compelled to repeat his blows continually. Continually either because we are not moved when he chastises us with his hand or we seem roused for the time, then we return, Calvin said, to the former toper, which is like an alcoholic state, and then Calvin said, he is therefore compelled to redouble his blows. I just thought... Maybe there's someone here. Maybe there's someone listening. Maybe there's someone hearing this on the radio. God was at work in Nebuchadnezzar's life for 30 years. And when the hound of heaven is after you, Calvin's going to say he's going to be compelled to redouble his blows, and I don't want you to turn me off tonight, today. This could be you. But you need to hear Ferguson Sinclair in his excellent commentary tells of John Elias. He was an 18th century Welsh evangelist and he used a vivid illustration of what he called the conscience silencing that took place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He recalled the time when a local blacksmith had bought a new dog. And whenever Elias visited the blacksmith's shop, the dog would be heard barking fiercely as the blacksmith's hammer beat rhythmically on the metal of the horseshoes. As time went on, however, the barking became quieter and less frequent until one day Elias looked into the smithy, which is the workshop, to catch the blacksmith hammering away at the anvil, and he saw the dog asleep by the fire, silent at last. I think Nebuchadnezzar had grown so accustomed to the hammering of the word of God, ignoring it that he rendered his conscience increasingly immune to its impact on his own life. Listen, you may be a high school student. Somebody may be whispering into your ear. And there comes a time when that dog would bark fiercely. And then he just fell asleep in the light and became immune to the hammering of the blacksmith's hammer. I think it sounds like Paul in Romans 2, 4. Or do you, to you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath where God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then the last phrase he will render to each one according to his works. Pride here is a cruel master. I say to you what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. Break off from your sins. Understand the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and do righteousness I think it's interesting that he focused on a major sin for Nebuchadnezzar what was his sin well many of them but oppressing the poor and helpless I mean he oppressed many peoples he destroyed many cities he exiled them to different places in his empire he carried off the brightest to serve under him and he used slave labor to build Babylon And here, his time, at least at this moment, ran out. So God most high rules. Secondly, pride is a cruel master. And thirdly, as I've mentioned, God is compassionate and merciful. He's compassionate and merciful. He warned Nebuchadnezzar, isn't that grace? Through the angelic watchers, before he judged him, A full year would pass. Twelve months would pass before the dream was fulfilled. And so he pursued him. He even explained to Nebuchadnezzar in detail what he must do to make it right. God even in his grace and mercy limited the punishment in verse 26. It was told to put a band around the stump. He was preserving, and so he was going to strike him down to the ground, but not take his life. God is so merciful and compassionate. Are you holding out on the Lord this morning? I mean, I think of my own life. I don't know, for about a year, I told you this before, just 14 years old, just pushing Christ out of my life. I'll do it later, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. And the more I put them off, the more the hound of heaven begin to pound deeply on my heart and I can only look back and thank the Lord for his grace and mercy to drive me and to drop me to my knees and to wait no further. Listen, if, are you in junior high? What are you waiting for? You're going to hear a testimony in just a moment of a young 16-year-old who gave his life to Christ. I hope you're listening. J. Allen Blair recited this. He said, years ago in London, there was a very large gathering of special guests, and among the invited guests was a well-known preacher named Caesar Milan. And there was a young woman who played and sang wonderfully. Everyone was thrilled and then very graciously, tactfully, and yet boldly, the preacher went up to her after her music had ceased. And he said, I thought as I listened to you tonight, young lady, how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited. Uh, if your talents were dedicated to him. He said, you know, young lady, you are a sinner in the sight of God, but I am glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses you from all sin. He told her he, she was a sinner. He so said, what did the lady do? Well, the young lady was Shocked. And she snapped out a rebuke for Milan, to which he replied, Lady, I mean no offense. I pray that God's Spirit will convict you. And they all went to their homes, and the young woman went to bed but couldn't sleep. Why? the face of the preacher appeared before her and her, his words to her were just ringing through her mind. And so at 2 a.m. in the morning, she sprang up from bed, she, her bed. She grabbed a pencil and a piece of paper and with tears streaming down her face, Charlotte Elliot wrote these words, just as I am, without one plea, but that thou thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me to come, O Lamb of God, I what? I come. Why? Maybe because God's sovereign, certainly, but a preacher with a compassionate heart was kind enough To tell her that she was a sinner. So here was Daniel, bold enough, kind enough to tell Nebuchadnezzar of his sin. You say, well, then how did a prideful, self willed tyrant bow his knee to the most high God? You have to come back next week, okay? I'm gonna tell you, and we're gonna, I I wanted to put it in here, but. There's too much in 34 to 37 because what happened to this guy will conclude the story. You can read ahead, but I do know this. He wasn't repentant as we drop off right there, but I can tell you about a young man that was, and you're going to hear his testimony in just a moment. Would you bow your head with me?